Working drummer. Now pick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hello everyone, Zach Albetta here, and thanks for joining us for Working Drummer Podcast. My interview today is with my college mentor, Mr. Doug Allwater. A few episodes ago, Matthew Krause interviewed his college mentor, Bob Breithaupt, and it was such a great conversation. Bob had so many simple but profound things to say about drumming and education. Uh, the whole time I was thinking, I gotta get Doug on here too. I've been meaning to do it for a long time, and that, that put me over the edge. Uh, so Doug has spent over four decades as a performer and educator in Kansas City. He is best known for his extensive expertise and passion surrounding Brazilian music and culture, which he has been cultivating since the 80s. Anything I know about how to play a samba or a bossa nova or a partido alto or afoche or bayal, I learned from Doug, and so did dozens of other Kansas City drummers, many of whom are friends of mine and some of whom have appeared on this very podcast, such as Ryan Lee and John Kazillermoot. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net, where you can check out old episodes, learn more about who we are, and purchase our newly minted merch, including t-shirts and stickers. You can also find a link to our Patreon page, or just go to patreon.com slash workingdrummer if you care to contribute a little money each month to help keep the podcast going. There are some great incentives there for donations at any level, including the aforementioned merch, Access to bonus content, a free lesson with one of our past guests, such as Ben Caesar or Carter McLean, or the chance to be interviewed on an episode of Working Drummer. You can donate as little as $1 a month, and every donation at any level is greatly appreciated. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45 and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums and this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com so let's get to it with one of the godfathers of Kansas City drumming and really one of the most beloved musicians in that community, Doug Allwater. I'm good. You know, did you know I had a stroke a month or so ago? Yes, I did know that. Um, and, you know, judging by your, your Facebook post, it, it looked like uh, things were okay or, or at least going to be relatively soon. 
Yeah, they kind of misdiagnosed it at first. They said it was a TIA, which is, you know, goes away in a couple of days. But then they later found that it was a real stroke and it's not going to go away in a couple of days. But I'm, you know, practicing like more than I have in ages. Yeah. <laughs> get left hand back. Right. You know, a couple hours a day anyway. So. Right. And how's it going? Well, it's going pretty good. You know, I, I keep finding things I can't do. Um, when I tracked like paradiddles three weeks ago or so, it was about 100, 138, mm -hmm. which is not very many. Mm -hmm. um, you know, before I was at about 205 to 210. But last week I was 195. So, yeah, yeah. You know, but there are certain things. You know, like that really up-tempo samba on the snare drum. I can't do that. Really? So, you know, it's just... Still working on it. Yeah, still still working on it. Work in progress, so we'll see. Well, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and we can, you know, we can make this a part of the interview or not. Up to you, but fine with me. Whatever you want to do. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you about uh, like this is not the first health issue that you've had in in recent years that's you know affected your drumming and and regardless of what specific health issues a person has as you age, it, it can really affect a drumming career. Um, yeah. So how how have you dealt with these things physically, and how has it affected you psychologically, and um. Well, that's a, you know, that's a really good question. I, I got some, I have, I've had lingering neuropathy, um, uh, in my feet from chemo mm -hmm. when I was down with, with that. So, um, and I think that there may have been some like kind of stiffness in my right wrist. Um, but that goes away you know, after about 20 minutes of playing mm -hmm. and you're on good and warmed up, you were on chemo like five years ago. Was it? It wasn't that long ago. Okay. I think it was more like three or four years ago. Yeah. It's not something I think about. Very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, well then let's talk about it by all means. No, it's okay. <laughs> I just don't, you know, I just don't think about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I, I have to make sure I'm good and warmed up for that. And also, no matter what I do, uh, I've got it in my feet. And uh, that was a little bit of a, not a little bit, it was a concern. Um, I was doing a recording session about two months ago, three months ago, and I just couldn't feel the bass drum pedal very well. I couldn't feel where my foot was on the bass drum pedal, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it was a long-ass session. It was, you know, like three hours. Right. And it was like some funk stuff. I really needed to feel that. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's nothing I could do about that. So, you know, I was kind of concerned about how long I was going to be able to, you know, keep going. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, it's, it's kind of ironic. Um, I don't, uh, you know, know about all the metaphysical stuff, but I was getting kind of, um, getting kind of attitude situations about my gigs sometimes, you uh -huh. know, like, um, just like, I don't want to be in a dark club tonight. I want to be home and, 
you know, chilling with Chris. Right. Um, and, you know, then this happened. Mm-hmm. And so that really, I wasn't ready to stop right. at all. Right, right. So that kind of changed my perception on a lot of stuff. Yeah, it seems like it kind of lit a new fire under you to, exactly. to stay in shape and keep going and exactly. go as long as you can. Yeah. 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 Um and I've I've always thought that that you were a person of of very sound mind and and good humor and and pragmatism about these sort of things. Um Yeah, I th- I think so. I hope so. <laughs> I remember I was I was in Kansas City a few years ago uh and I was doing a clinic at Explorers and and you were nice enough to come and at the time uh like a bunch of the guys that that worked and taught at Explorers, for some reason, none of them had gotten a haircut. They were all looking like really bushy and rough. Right. Uh, you know, like Joe Voy and Matt Leifer and Kent Burnham and like yeah, all these cats that. just had this like big, huge, messy heads of hair. <laughs> and I, you were you were sitting in the front row and you had no hair whatsoever because you were right. on, on chemo. And uh, you know, the third or fourth one of them walked in the store in the middle of my clinic. I think it was Matt Leifer, uh, just with this long hair. And and I stopped my clinic. I was like, "Man, has anybody here gotten a haircut since I moved away?" And just with the biggest smile, you raised your hand straight up in the air, <laughs> and the place fell out. It was great. <laughs> yeah, that was such a you know that was such a odd, surreal time. You know, I mean, confronting your mortality. Yeah, you know, is is intense, but. You know, I, I did have the sense that I was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do about it? I mean, you know, worry about the stuff you've got some control over. Right, right. So, and what role? What role did music play in your life at that time? Because I, I would imagine that it was kind of a, both a you know a reminder of your mortality. There's things you you can't do anymore, or at least things you can't do right now. But also, I, also a source of strength, a source of joy. Right. Yeah, I played right through it. Wow. I just played right through it. I, yeah. There were some very difficult uh, gigs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ha- I was getting treated in the summertime. Mm-hmm. So there were some, you know, like July and August gigs that were pretty brutal. Hmm. I remember one, we were like, my daughter's family was here this weekend and uh, they live in Omaha. So I played jazz in June and in uh, Lincoln and they came down and you know that was a that was a rough one I mean I remember very well sitting there going I don't know how I'm going to do this I mean I I feel like shit yeah yeah and I did I mean I just felt bad I'm just sick and from chemo right and I don't know that I ever felt bad from the the cancer particularly Mm -hmm. right you know but the treatment (laughs) was was a bear yeah so Anyway, but I just, you know, something always kicks in when I'm sitting there counting the first tune off and I just get through it and it was okay. Right. It was totally okay. Right, right. Uh, well, that's, that's, uh, that's good advice because I think, you know, if, if, we're, if we're lucky enough to, to get old and still be drumming, there, there are going to be health issues that uh, yeah. put themselves in the way and, and uh Playing, playing through it sounds like good medicine. Yeah, I remember the, the first gig I had um, was 
during the right after my first chemo was at the Blue Room with the Suns, mm-hmm. and um, you know I played like a house on fire. <laughs> but what I didn't realize was that you know part of that was the prednisone, which when you first have it, you you do everything like a house on fire, <laughs> right. and then you crash. Uh, you know, yeah. A few days later, you crash. Right. And then that happened too. But it was funny. I just, you know, I couldn't wait to get to the gig, and you know, it was it was great. So yeah, I mean, it seems like a not only an emotional roller coaster, but an energy roller coaster. Yeah, very much, very much that. Yeah. Yeah, very uh, much that. Well, uh, enough about uh, cancer and strokes and mortality. And all that <laughs> You're best known uh, around Kansas City uh, and, and around the country for your encyclopedic knowledge and, and undying love of uh, Brazilian music. Um, so I, I definitely wanted to talk to you about that. You, you turned me onto it. You've turned so many other students and musicians around Kansas City onto it um and uh just to kind of take us through the the beginning of your love affair with uh, brazil and brazilian music and culture um okay. and, and where it's taken you well in terms of, of undying love and, and passion you know i i definitely will own that in terms of encyclopedic i that would be a pretty cheap encyclopedia <laughs> i'm sure i'd want a copy of that but anyway thank you um in 1979, well, I've always liked that music. When I was a teenager, you know, I was into everything. You know, Miles Davis, the Beatles, the Stones, everything. Yeah. Um, but along came the Bossa Nova, and it just seemed like a kind of a, like a, an alternative universe or something. It was yeah. just so different. And, you know, if you were into jazz at that time, you could really hear that sensibility uh, so I really liked that. A little bit later, Sergio Mendes came along. I thought that was cool. But in 1979, I heard um, an NPR broadcast of the Brazilian Hour, hmm. uh, a show that Sergio Mianishenko puts on from Los Angeles, and it's still going. Um, anyway, it was just an hour of various types of Brazilian popular music. Mm-hmm. And it just blew me away. I, the breadth and scope of it was amazing. The complexity was there, but it was beautiful. There was no kind of artificial complexity. It, it was right. whatever served the music, rhythms, of course. And it just seemed like somebody had read my mail. <laughs> you know, this, is, <laughs> this is what Doug Allwater would really like to hear. You know, so it, and it was, and that, that's started it. So I actually uh, recorded that. I began recording that every single week and just, I was obsessed with it. Oh yeah. I and I was always you... kind of obsessive about different kinds of music. Um, I, you know, I would kind of get sort of um, obsessed with whatever I was listening to at the time for a while. It was uh, soul music and especially James Brown, specifically Clyde Stubblefield on drums, mm-hmm. you know, and it just various things I became obsessed with. So when that came along, that that really was it. And before that, it was Afro-Cuban stuff. I was really into that. Right, right. So that turned out to be 
in some ways a little less accessible in terms of getting into the depth of it. Mm-hmm. You could find, you know, Tito Puente and, and Pancho Sanchez and all that stuff as much as you wanted. But if you wanted to go back to the roots of, of Cuban music, it wasn't available to us. Right. Uh, you know, the, that door had closed. And Brazilian music wasn't yet available, uh, but this radio show was. And so that was it. I just became obsessed with it. And then I decided I needed to go to Brazil and I started studying Portuguese. I went to Brazil, uh, was invited to sit in with some really A-list characters, what might be characterized really as the the Brazilian wrecking crew (laughs) were showing up at this jam one after another playing and they invited me to sit in and one by one, you know, some of my idols were would take the stage and play, and I was just like, I don't know. I just I was just so swept up by the moment and making sure everything was going okay, but almost in disbelief at the same time. Right. <laughs> and I wound up I wound up being invited twice more to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I left that place. We'd exchanged phone numbers with some of the guys and. I was just walking on air. I, I couldn't sleep, but I thought, you know, I'd, that was the last I'd see of them. But two days later, my phone rang and it was the pianist and said, Doggy, we're playing at a jazz club across from your hotel. Can you come and play with us? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was it. And, and those um, those friendships I maintained to this day. Mm-hmm. A couple of them, unfortunately, are no longer with us on the planet, but but. Uh, the, the ones that are, I'm still very close to and, and I'm always in touch with them when I go to Rio. And and who are some of those names as far as the, you know, well, the Brazilian Osmar Milito on piano. Sorry, what? Osmar Milito mm-hmm. on piano. You know, he's hundreds and hundreds of recordings uh, playing with pretty much everybody. Javan, Elise Regina. Yeah. Uh, you name it. Um, Luis Almaya was the bassist on the gig. He passed away several years ago. Another drummer who played that night was Pascual Mireles, one of the sweetest guys you'd ever meet. Um, he was, he played some tunes. Uh, it was, um, well, let's say Mauro Senizi on saxophone. Right. Just, um, yeah, amazing. amazing these these guys are just all over Brazilian records since the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how did you uh, how did you start incorporating you know that that music and that passion into your life in Kansas City? You know I've always been kind of a an, an unwitting proselytizer. You know I, <laughs> I would uh, you know in a nice way I hope you know I just was always dragging my music around and making my friends listen to it. Right, right. But they were willing participants one of the things that happened after that first trip i had intended to buy a bunch of music and and give you know things cds or whatever to my friends actually cds were just beginning in brazil and they were really expensive so i came home with a whole bunch of cassettes because lps just weren't viable in a suitcase i was afraid you know things mm-hmm. would happen to them anyway um but i made a mixtape um, I intended to just distribute a bunch of CDs, but or a bunch of cassettes. But that would have been—I could have easily spent two hundred dollars and not have a note for myself. So I decided I would make a mixtape. 
and they were it was really good. And people would call me up and say, "Hey, I hear you've got this mixtape. Uh, <laughs> you know, can you make me one? You know." And so, you know, people like Gerald Spates and a lot a lot of the local cats were getting these these things and really digging them. And mm-hmm. um, you know, it just people heard them and. Danny Embry, uh, the you know the great guitarist, had just moved back to Kansas City mm-hmm. and had played, I think, for seven years or something with Sergio Mendes, and yeah. he had put together a little group with Greg Whitfield and I, just a trio. And um, and Stan, you know, was really gung ho for the music, and so that was really the birth of the Sons of Brazil. Stan Kessler, trumpet player. Yes, Stan yeah. Kessler. So, um, you know we put this band together and started playing immediately. And it was a success right from the start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were at a club that, you know, I mean, I say it was a success. A lot of people were showing up, but the club owner at that particular place was not that into it and uh, decided he wanted us to alternate weekly with a blues bands. Another <laughs> guy from down the street had this place called the Boulevard Cafe, mm-hmm. which had, you know, primarily Mediterranean, but international cuisine. And, and he just loved the band. And he said, listen, it would be really uncool for me to try to steal you away from this. But if you ever need to make a change, please see me first. Yeah. So, you know, when it was announced that, you know, it was desired that we alternate weeks with this blues band, we said, I called him up, and we stayed there for nine years. Wow! At the at the at the new place for right. the Boulevard Cafe for nine years until they closed. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then you know we've been playing in other places ever since. So right, right, yeah. Um, and what is the what is the catalog of of Sons of uh, Sons of Brazil? You know, I haven't counted in a long time, but but at last count, there were well over two hundred tunes in that book. Yeah. It's, it's probably over 300 by now. Right. Maybe, maybe right. more. And, and just is it's some, um, some kind of standard arrangements of, of, you know, popular Brazilian stuff. It's some original tunes that you guys have written, mm-hmm. some, uh, custom arrangements that you've done. Right. Yeah. We would, you know, we would do basically covers of arrangements of tunes, Brazilian arrangements that we liked. Right. Right. You know, there would be like a, a popular tune, but somebody would really, you know, a lot of times Cesar Camargo Mariano would, you know, have like a really epic arrangement of a song. We would just, you know, basically transcribe that. Right. Right. And, you know, we were starting to write our own tunes as well. And then, you know, we started making our own arrangements, um, you know, where, you know, we would just take whatever and, Right. And make it our own. You're all yeah. you're all capable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that's been kind of more the the mo uh, in the last decade or so. Right. Is making our own arrangements. And and you, you know it's funny too. I mean, the, the from a drumming standpoint, you know, when I had my stroke, I had to stop playing with them for a couple of months, mm-hmm. and I really had never given much thought about the complexity of the difficulty of playing that music, but yeah, it's something. Yeah. You know, trying to get that back. It's like, wow, this is way harder than I ever realized. You know, we, we were all just kind of growing along with the music. Right. Right. So anyway, yeah, now it's like, wow, this, 
this is pretty hard. And you poor guys that have to sub for me, what an amazing job you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And who, who did sub for you during that time? Well, it's been, uh, John Kazillermoot. Yeah. He's been Sam on the Weisman, mm-hmm. and Todd Strait. John and Todd have, have both been on the podcast already. I got to get, I got to get Sam on there sometime. Yeah. 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 So they're all doing, you know, great, great work. Yeah. And I mean, that's, you know, a, a testament to Kansas city and, and, you know, a, a testament to, to your leadership in the drumming community, I think is that, you know, if you, if you got to take some time off, there's already, I mean, you know, I think in most cities there wouldn't be one dude who could, you know, ably sub for a group like that. Something that's so stylistically specific and, and so deep into the music, but in Kansas City, there's like three, four guys off the top of your head that uh, yeah. Well, except can... for Todd, they're my students. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, so this also led to uh, to the publishing of of your first book, essential yeah. essential Latin styles for the drum set. Right. Um, and how old is that book by this point? Hmm. Good question. I think I think its copyright date is two thousand six. Okay. Yeah. So over over a decade. Um, yeah. That's that's an amazing book. And for anybody listening, I I can't well, recommend <laughs> it. I can't recommend it highly enough to to get not only the basics, uh, but you know the the next couple of levels of Afro Cuban and Brazilian music. Um, but talk about the the conception of that book because it's not it's not uh, exclusively um, a method book. It's not exclusively a, a kind of a textbook, um, and you know, yeah, his, it's, history it's, book of these styles. It's really a, a combination of the two. It, the book is really written in the way that I teach, and it was interesting. You know, the the person that really gave me the most impetus to put it together was Frank Mantooth, mm. the great the great jazz pianist and arranger. Mm-hmm. We were doing a, a clinic in Oklahoma. And he said, you know, Doug, when you just, when you start talking about this stuff, I just hear the, the cash register going off. <laughs> well, he always had a funny way of putting everything. He yeah, said, you yeah. got to get this put together. And so in, it, it was sort of like, you know, Ted Reed always talked about syncopation being a cl- collection of exercises that he gave to his students. And that's what most of this book was. It was just, um, things that I would put in finale and notation software and hand out. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, yeah, there's, I need to connect the dots and there's a book here. Right. But, um, was, you know, I, I really, in my teaching, one of the challenging things was to get people to realize because here in the Midwest, um, people don't necessarily realize that Latin music isn't all the same thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. The, the, it's it's not the just Cuban the mid, not just the Midwest. I think it's the, yes. the country. Well, I'm large. sure that's true, but yeah. the Cuban stuff is completely different from the Brazilian stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I made sure that I, I wanted to do a book that had both in there. Right. And also in my teaching, um once we get the the drummers squared away, it still isn't working because yeah. the rhythm section players aren't playing the right stuff. Yep. So, you know, they're blending stuff and making stuff up on the, on the spot and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I, I felt it necessary to, to put, you know, I think almost a third of the book is 
keyboard and or not keyboard, but well, keyboard, but chordal instruments and bass, uh, bass parts, mm-hmm. chordal comping patterns, and all of that. Right. So that was how the book evolved. You know, it was right from my teaching and all the, you know, there is a fair amount of blah blah blah, you know, writing in there ex- explaining stuff. Right. But, um, that's you know that's kind of me. I mean, I do. I do that. No, but I mean, you, you, you kind of, uh, you, you talk about your own writing, uh, disparagingly, but I'm, I'm going to defend it. I think it's one of the great things about that book is that there's, there's quite a bit of text in the book, just kind of explaining, you know, yeah, what, I what know this people, notation, I want to know where it came from. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's explaining what the notation represents and, and you reference, you know, specific artists and records that should be listened to and understood. I mean, it's not just like learn these patterns. It's right. Here's, right. Here's where you can hear this stuff. Here's how it fits with the rest of the rhythm section. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, that book and all that material has been a double edged sword for me because since, you know, having gone through it and having learned some of this stuff, like you said, I sometimes you learned it very well. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> but <laughs> but now, well. you know, since then I've, I've sometimes found myself in rhythm sections with players who don't, know that stuff necessarily and and you know i'm i'm trying to do the more authentic uh stuff and it doesn't fit with the 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 americanized uh to put it politely uh versions of of things that people are playing right um and so the the you took the same approach with uh with your other book which was um uh, there was essential Latin styles for the drum set and essential rock styles. Rock. For the drum. Yeah. Essential rock. Yeah. Right. That book, you know, I, I really had more of that put together before I had the Latin book. Um, I'd been teaching that stuff for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And I just had more of a buzz to get the, the Latin book done. Right. So then I finally got the rock book done, but it's like, I don't know, 220 pages long or something. Yeah. I've never understood how somebody could write a book supposedly with any degree of, of thoroughness in 60 pages. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's just so much more to it than that. Right. So, and I, you know, put that book together too, according to the way I learned how to play the styles when I, when I first started playing uh, rock in 1960, yeah, a long time ago. You know, it only been around for about five years, so it was pretty simple. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't take lessons, at least here in Kansas City, you could not take drum lessons learning rock. That was totally not taught at that time. Right. In fact, I asked my drum teacher, who was this Ben Udell, a great uh, timpanist and uh, with the Kansas City Philharmonic at the time, I said, so, Mr. Udell, do you teach people to play rock and roll on the drum set? And he goes, all water. It's from New York. All water. This is a music studio. (laughs) That not being music is not taught in this music studio. (laughs) Okay. So I was on my own. And I, so I, you know, basically just learned how to play as the music developed. So as it became more and more complex, my skills became greater and, um, you know, I was able to grow right along with it. Right. And that's the way it's presented in the book. It's, you know, from simple to advanced, but the, the rhythms are linked. Mm-hmm. You know, I quickly figured out that, you know, there's not an infinite number of basic 
patterns, you know, between snare drum and bass drum. Right. You know, so I came up with six and there are many, many, many variations of those. You know, I don't mean to imply there's only six real rock rhythms at all, but you know, you can put them in these families. Right. Six roots or families of rhythms. And that's the way the, at least half of that book is done. So in addition to the basic rock stuff, there are, you know, shuffles and 12, eight blues Half time, double time, fills. Right. Lots right. and lots of all of, all kinds of different right hand leads. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's 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 a really comprehensive book that I think um, you know I mean it's it's a resource for, for anybody. I think there are certain books that are geared towards beginning students and, and geared towards advanced students, and I think that's why you end up sometimes with shorter volumes of you know, a few dozen pages. Yeah, um, maybe so. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I mean, like the, like the Latin book, it's, it's extremely comprehensive. And I, I wanted to go back to the Latin thing for a minute. Um, because like you said, there's, there's a, a clear dividing line between the Afro-Cuban and the Brazilian. Um, and from the beginning of the book, like, I mean, it's, it's basically divided into two halves. It's like two books. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, chapter one, Afro-Cuban chapter two, Brazilian. <laughs> um, yeah. So can you talk about just a few of the, the misconceptions or a few of the ways that, that, you know, Afro-Cuban and Brazilian is, is kind of conflated, uh, in the American mind? Well, Sure. Yeah, a lot of times, you know, we'll we'll have like that that uh, kubop or cubop rhythm that is being played in the hands, and then a samba bass drum is is played against that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you if you do happen to have a, a bass player that that knows what he's doing and he wants to play a a good Cuban tumbao rhythm, that is totally. <laughs> at cross purposes with your bass drum. It does not fit that at all. Right. And, you know, and, and the same thing is true if you're playing that in your hands and you've got a pianist or a guitarist that does know what they're doing and wants to play proper comping rhythms mm-hmm. and you're doing that stuff, it's it's not working at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the thing. I mean, you can't, you're you're blending two things together that really don't belong together and so what are the other poor guys supposed to do? Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So it's, that's a, that's one very common way. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, people, even people that, that have studied and should know better sometimes will, will do that. You know, here's, you know, here is a partito alto, but we're doing a songo bass drum or vice versa. <laughs> right. Why in the world? Yeah. Just tell me how this is going to work. Well, they're both Latin, Doug. <laughs> well, they're both Latin, you know. and I—I I mean, I, so many times I would—I would have students that would say, you know, college on a college level, you mean it isn't all the same thing, right? Well, where does it come from? Yeah, you know, I find that that you know people of that age have a woefully inadequate um, knowledge of just plain geography. Mm, yeah. I think it's, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound like an old fart here and say, you know, the, the world is going to hell and young people are, you know, putting it there. But, <laughs> you know, I think part of the problem is people don't have a worldview like like perhaps they used to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for for years I taught 
um, world intro to world music. And most of those uh, people, students in my class, at least at the beginning, had no idea where most of this stuff was. It, where most of these countries were. Yeah. 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 I mean, the Middle East, you know, they thought was like just east of Germany or something. <laughs> they were looking at it, you know, I mean, just a, a minor example. Mm -hmm. What is sub-Saharan Africa? You know, I mean, they didn't know. Right. And I've even seen some articles, you know, in well-meaning publications, like Modern Drummer, which is a very good magazine. But I've, I've seen, you know, stuff in there about, you know, how to apply the the Cuban clave to Brazilian music and this kind of thing, which, you know, drives me crazy when somebody publishes that. Because right. Because that, that should not make it to print. Right, <laughs> right, right. Because the, the Cuban clave is not applied to Brazilian. Yeah, music. and you know, you know that I had this this kind of um, ambivalence about the term Brazilian clave because you know there are certainly key rhythms that function in a similar way to the Cuban clave. Right. But you know what we're trying to do here is to get people to understand and appreciate the difference between these styles of music, and I think that just clouds things and, yes. and it creates yeah. it creates more confusion than it eliminates for sure right i mean like so basically what you're saying is that, that you know something like the partido alto could be considered yes. it, it could be considered the cuban clave or the the brazilian clave brazilian clave exactly but as, as soon as you start using the same word for two different things uh, you know, it like the, the partido alto functions in Brazilian music the same way that the clave functions in Cuban music. Yeah. But they are not the same rhythm at all. Yeah. I, I tell people, I said, well, you know, it, it is, you know, what, I don't see the problem in that. I just said, well, I don't, I don't see the purpose of using um, words that exist in Cuba to describe Brazilian things. I said, they, they have beans in Brazil too. But they don't call them frijoles. They have money in Brazil, but they don't call it peso. You right. Know, like, come on. Right. Right. Just, just get a little deeper into it and and yeah. learn some. And it, I mean, it doesn't need a name. It has a name. It's called Partido yeah, Alto. Yeah, that's and, right. It already has a name. <laughs> exactly. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So uh, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the other classes that you teach. You're, you're obviously very active as a private teacher, both on the collegiate level and, and in your own private studio. But at, right. at various universities and colleges around the area, you've taught classes in music appreciation mm -hmm. and music history. Talk about... Uh, some of those, some of those courses, and and uh, the the students that that take them. <laughs> well, I I uh, have I've trimmed that back. I mean, I've tried to kind of trim it back a little bit 
I'm sick. I just turned 68. So, yeah. you know, I'm thinking about retirement at some point. Yeah. Kick back. I'm, man. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm not really <laughs> one of these people that wants to do what I'm doing in, until I drop, you know, right. I, I don't want to go out with my boots on. I, you know, I, I would <laughs> like to, you know, chill and do some traveling and, and just kind of enjoy the fruits of my labor. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I probably will always be doing at least some private teaching and, and playing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so the, the classes that I uh, have taught, like Intro to World Music, that's a fun class because they're not musicians for the most part. Mm-hmm. They're people that are interested in music. And to see the world opening up in their minds and hearing these things and coming for them coming to the realization that there's a whole lot of stuff that they knew or that they know now that they didn't know before. Right. You know, tracing the the Romani people or the Roma people from like India across Europe and, and into Spain and the development of flamenco music, just some of those things. Right. You know, and how the music of North Africa, you know, is very similar to the music of the Middle East. Now it's fundamentally different than the music of sub-Saharan Africa, you know, just uh, it's, it's fantastic. And the different kinds of music uh, in the Caribbean, some of them, you know, enjoy Bob Marley, for instance, but really have no idea where reggae came from, much less the music that came before it or any of the, the Rastafarian, you know, jargon that goes along with it. Right. Uh, you know, so it's it's just that that class is, was always a blast for me to teach. Um, and then the stuff. Uh, the first college teaching I did was actually at Missouri Western State. Well, it was actually Missouri Western State College at that time and then it became Missouri Western State University. And uh, there was a, a very forward looking um, chairman of the music department, Matt Gilmore and Dennis Rogers was the percussion guy and they put their heads together and, and uh, realized that if they had me come and do some classes, it would fulfill a, a, a diversity requirement. Right. And people could actually get a diversity credit for taking my stuff. So that was the first time that I uh, really taught classes in Cuban and Brazilian music, as well as, you know, some other Caribbean styles, Calypso, mm-hmm. reggae, etc. Um and that was great. That was mostly mu- music majors. And then at the conservatory, um, you know, basically jazz studies along with the uh, Brazilian and Cuban stuff and uh, having uh, a Latin combo there that was like a workshop for all of this. Right. You know, that was a blast. And uh, and teaching jazz history. I love teaching jazz history um, because those guys are really up to speed with pretty much everything from bebop to now. Mm-hmm. But before that, not so much. Yeah. So yeah. really, really fun to connect those dots for them. Yeah. So I love teaching that class too. Yeah. I, I kind of get the feeling that, uh, especially with the, the intro to world music class that, um, those, those students are maybe, uh, 
not <laughs> they they don't quite know what they're signing up for because like you said like they're you know it's like i'm into bob marley i'll take a world music class and exactly then they get into your class which is extremely comprehensive uh you know not not only is the curriculum you know very comprehensive and and a deep dive but you yourself are a hard ass uh <laughs> and i say that well, with, it, it with all the love in the world do kind of go into shock with that you know it's like oh my god you know this is way too intense but you know they either suck it up and and grow with it or mm-hmm. they don't and fortunately most of them do well right uh every it's a classroom it's a it's a general class so yeah um every semester unfortunately there would be two or three people that would totally not do well right but for the most part you know they would you know do extremely well and and the ones that really nailed it you know they they just loved it i mean they just you know they couldn't believe what they were learning and it was exactly what they wanted right right but yeah they they definitely have homework weekly weekly uh, listening homework uh, exams projects mm-hmm. yeah yeah and i, I yeah. remember you you telling me that you you tell them at the beginning like if you skip this class you're going to fail like yes yeah. <laughs> yeah there are some college classes that you can kind of catch up on or or whatever but you know definitely cannot phone it in yeah 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 uh and <laughs> and jazz history is the same way you right. know yeah, whatever. I mean, I, I give a lot of background and stuff. I just, you know, I'm, I'm a geek. I am. Yeah. Guilty charged, you know. But, <laughs> but I think, um, you know, what is anything without depth? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? There, you, there have been some really funny stories uh, that have come out of those classes too, and I, I would, I would like you to just recount one of them, which was uh, the, the student, and I think it was an intro to world music class, and and you covered. Uh, you covered everything from klezmer to high life to juju yeah. to, to reggae. Yeah. And so, <laughs> what was the story about the uh, uh, on, on the exam? You you said uh, the question was what is what is the traditional folk music most commonly associated with the nation of Israel? <laughs> right, or we're just with the Jewish people. Right. Okay. Yeah, the Jewish people, the the Jewish diaspora. Yeah. And yeah, unfortunately, this was a, a guy that did get an F in the class. Um, and we had just studied the unit before that had been sub-Saharan Africa. Mm-hmm. So his answer uh, was Juju. J-E-W, J-E-W. Yes. <laughs> and sadly, sadly, I'm not sure that he was kidding. <laughs> I don't I don't think he was, but that doesn't yeah. make it less funny. <laughs> I did get a laugh. You know, this is one for the record books. <laughs> oh man. Um, so I want to talk about uh the teaching you do specifically at, at UMKC where I went, the the program I was a part of and, and your drum students there. Um, because that, you know, obviously is is I think the deepest dive into drumming yeah. and, and stylistic concepts that, that you get to do as an educator. Um, right. So talk about the, the curriculum that you set up for the, the drum students at UMKC. Well, I want to um, give them stuff that they would not figure out on their own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we definitely do a lot of the, the Latin stuff. Right. But um, 
I also drummers that they have never heard of and just um, artists that they've never heard of. You know, the best the best drummers you've never heard of. Uh, Shadow Wilson. Yeah. Tiny. Yeah. You know, these guys. So I expose them to that. Um, and artists, you know, that they're, you know, great artists, uh, great pianist. Phineas Newborn comes to mind, you know, and, and just the stuff that they that, that they're not going to find out by watching YouTube videos. Right. Yeah. You know, and so most of them really have, when they come in, have enough skills to really play jazz pretty well. Mm -hmm. But they don't have the ears. Right. And so they start doing a lot of listening. Yeah. And I'll, I'll pick tunes and specific versions of tunes with specific drummers. And, you know, let's compare and contrast these. And there's... I don't think this was we were doing this so much when you were there, but they're doing a pretty good amount of transcribing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, that's that's it. Learning learning pacing, when to play, how, you know, that kind of thing, rather than learning pages of independence studies. Right, right. Most of them have enough of that already. They don't even know it. But <laughs> they do. Yeah, yeah. You need to start listening, really listening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I was, I was going to ask kind of how you strike a balance between. I was, I was just going over in my mind the the list of drummers that have studied with you just in the last ten years and how different they all are. Yeah, um, you know, I, I really wasn't aware of this. I just don't think in those terms until Roger Wilder. The, the great local pianist on his radio show was asking me kind of the same question. And he started listening, listing guys. Yeah. It was like, wow. Yeah. There are a bunch. I never really thought of it like that. Right. Right. But, um, but yeah, that's a, that's a thing that I especially like at the conservatory is that, that we're very conscientious about developing a person's voice. Mm hmm. And not letting them find their voice, and not just turning out cookie cutter drummers. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, one semester, well, it was several semesters. I, I had, I was lucky me. I mean, at the same time, I had Brian Stever and, and Ryan Lee. Yeah. As students, these two guys, best of friends, even roomed together for a while. Yeah. Um, but. I don't know how they could be any different right. Right. than each other, you know, and it's because they, they were developing their own, their own sound and mm -hmm. they have their own sound, but you know, and, and I don't try to mess with that. I, I try to add vocabulary and, and depth to their playing. So, you know, another guy that we mentioned, Sam Weisman, mm -hmm. you know, it's a completely different voice than those two. But, you know, he he uh, knows all of these things, you know, these, yeah. these styles. And that was always kind of the key for me coming up the, to differentiate myself from the other guys were styles. Right. That if if um, a lot of guys I worked did hundred, literally hundreds of jobs with Joe Cartwright, for instance, and, you know, he had some tunes especially in Afro-Cuban styles, but instead of doing that kind of generic jazz 
Afro-Cuban thing, I played Cascada rhythms and and that, and you know, during the the Montuno sections, I would go to the cowbell. I wasn't afraid to do those things. Yeah, and it was like, I don't know what it is, but this guy is different, and I like it. And I'm calling him. Right, right. He makes me want to play. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was that was a key of differentiating myself. With and, and vocalists, you know, would do all vocalists do, especially female vocalists do, you know, bossa novas, you know, and right. So when they would call it bossa nova, it wasn't just the generic thing. It was the real deal. Mm-hmm. And and they liked it. You yeah. know, it's, it's just, I don't know, this is just different and I like it. Right. And I, so, I think I think that's something that, that you've instilled in, in all of your students is to is to play authentically, whether it's whether it's to play a certain style authentically or to just um, play authentically within their own voice. You know, yeah. I, I look across the spectrum of, of Kansas City drummers and um, I, I don't see or hear any of them, uh, you know, unless they're on a corporate wedding gig or something. But if they're if right. they're if they're on a jazz gig, they're going to play like them. You know, they're not they're not exactly. going to try to play it down the middle or play it straight ahead. They're going to they're going to add something individualistic mm-hmm. and, and right. unique to almost any gig they're on. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I I love talking about Kansas City on on this podcast. It's it's represented hard uh, on on this podcast. And bless you. <laughs> um, well, you know it's a funny thing. One of the times, one of the things that I do when I do play in Brazil, the the pianist that I work most often with, Osmar, uh, loves to play American jazz, and he's really good at it. Mm-hmm. So I played you know a, a set with him. Um, at a club and uh, you know there were it was in Rio so there's tourists there you know not just the local guys right and um, the the this guy was from Ireland and he, after the set he says wow where are you from I said oh, I'm from Kansas City he goes no wonder you swing your ass off <laughs> I thought, yes yes sir Kansas City yes indeed and that actually was my entree to the first time that I sat in. Mm-hmm. Um, they were intrigued with playing a couple of jazz tunes with an American drummer from Kansas City. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, I think, you know, the main reason they invited me to sit in. They, they didn't know I was going to play anything but that. But the, the drummer, uh, Robertinho Silva, who had played drums with uh, Milton Nascimento at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, he was upstairs, you know, talking to somebody, um, and was staying up there talking to somebody and just kind of leaving me there. So after we did, you know, a couple of jazz tunes, they said, you know, we, we need to play a samba. Can you play a samba? So, oh, please, <laughs> please play a samba. This was before the sons of Brazil. I mean, it, right. I, I'd never, you know, never really certainly never played samba with the Brazilian rhythm section before. And it right. was, it was a revelation. Yeah. I mean, it was, and it was funny because I, it, it was a complicated tune, um, a Javan tune that did have some, you know, like straight samba, and switched to Partido Alto, you know, and and we're playing along, and I kind of got my eyes closed. I'm in a little trance world or something, and um, I look 
open my eyes and look, and the pianist and the bassist are laughing. And I go, what are they laughing? This is good. This is good. This is killing. Right. And, you know, they saw, you know, eye contact and they're like giving me a thumbs up. And it turned out that they just thought it was hilarious that this tourist fell in from out of the street <laughs> and, you know, knew the arrangement, knew the the breaks and right. You know, knew the style. I said, guys, I probably listen to this music more than you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but it was that entree, that Kansas city thing that got me invited in the first place. Right. And, and you're someone who has, uh, you know, lived, um, basically the entire modern history of Kansas city music. Um, yeah. because you were born and raised there. Uh, I was actually born in Ogden, Utah. Oh, that's right. That's right. And lived and lived in Los Angeles for for I don't know seven seven years or so. Right, but I mean, and then Ken- moved here. But yeah, my entire professional career was in Kansas City. Right. So you know, I wanted to ask you as as somebody who has been on the scene and and one of the drivers of the scene for that long. Um, you know, how has it how has it changed over the years? How has Bobby's Bobby Watson's program at UMKC uh, changed it? Um, you know, what, uh, what was, what was Kansas city like 40 years ago and what's better or worse about it today? Well, it's a lot different and it's a lot better. Mm. Um, jazz had kind of gone underground Mm. in Kansas city. Uh, you know, there was a jazz festival and there were some clubs, but it wasn't like it is now Mm -hmm. where lots of people were showing up. So, you know, what I, call kind of the, the, the lean times, you know, in the late sixties and, and, uh, a good part of the seventies, there wasn't a lot happening, but, um, a couple things happened. Um, one guy that had a kind of a concert space opened up Sunday nights. Well, it wasn't a concert space then it was a place that had, it was called King Henry's feast. And it was um, sort of like a an indoor Renaissance festival, <laughs> except it was it was more um, what I want to say, sort of uh, scripted. Right. And so that was what it was, you know, during the week. And then on Sunday nights, he thought, "I'm going to put jazz in here." So a lot of the uh, you know the better jazz players, you know, started doing Sunday nights. And people showed up in droves. Hmm. At about that same time, there was a, a bar at the Crown Center Hotel called the Signboard Bar. And somebody had the idea to do a jazz happy hour there. Hmm. There wasn't hardly any jazz in clubs at all mm-hmm. at this time. So they had this jazz happy hour, which was a smashing success. Hmm. So, you know, a light goes on for some other club owners and they started doing a jazz format and it just grew from there Mm -hmm. and it's never slowed down. Um, The the Bobby thing uh, has been great. I mean, they they tried to have a jazz program at UMKC for decades. Right. And it just never really got off the ground. When Bobby came, it did get off the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, there were some growing pains at the beginning. Uh, I, right now, you know, we've got, you know, Bobby's kind of the halo guy, and, and Dan Thomas is the nuts and bolts guy. Right. And they both relish their roles. Right. 
before that, uh, you know, it wasn't quite so in such perfect unison, you know, it, right. Or harmony, I should say, <laughs> but, but it is, uh, you know, it, it's been that way for, for several years. So now there's a real buzz to come to Kansas city. And so there, you know, the, the young cats are getting out. Um, I remember 20 years or more ago going to, um, the foundation, mm-hmm. which is an after hours, um, jam that takes place in what was once the African-American musicians union headquarters, right? The, the black union headquarters. Right. And, uh, you know, there, it was a very sleepy thing, you know, not, not good players. People, I think were mostly there because they knew they could get a drink after hours. Right. And, you know, it was a very tired scene about 10 years or so ago. I played a special kind of private show there and it was over at midnight when the place opened to the public and there were droves of people there, mostly under the age of 25 or so. Yeah. They were there, not just musicians, but there to see their musician friends, college students at the conservatory jazz studies. And, you know, they were throwing down these guys you know, they would they came to school together and, and for the first time in their lives, they were united with people that were just as serious as they were about learning how to play. Right. And they couldn't wait. Right. To, to get out there and, and do it. Yeah. And so it, it was it was beautiful. I just yes. almost had tears in my eyes. It was so full of people. And here were my students on the one hand and here were a bunch of their friends on the other to watch them throw down. Right. It was it was wonderful. Yeah, very inspiring. I think that's that's one of the uh, one of the greatest services I think Bobby has done to Kansas City is that uh, you know, like you said, he got the jazz program off the ground at UMKC. Right. But it it wasn't it wasn't just that he got it off the ground. It, it's that he he made it. Um, uh, he he attracted young players and he encouraged them to do new stuff. Um, it, it wasn't, right. it wasn't just, I'm going to get young players and we're going to revitalize Kansas city jazz and it's going to be all bebop all the time. Um, right. and there's, you know, there's, there's always great bebop in Kansas city. It's just, it's part of the blood type there, but, but something Bobby has done is encourage students to write, put together original groups, uh, you know, collaborate with the, the other oh, musicians absolutely. in other genres in Kansas city. And yeah. I think it's just, it's just exploded um, generationally and stylistically in the last 10 years in Kansas City. Well, the faculty is key, too. I mean, they, they uh, as much as they possibly can, they, they hire who they want, mm-hmm. and they leave us the hell alone. <laughs> yeah. As much as they can. Uh, right. The long arm of academia, you know, has put some constraints in that. Uh, so, you know, we've got to do more paperwork than we once did, but still... We have their absolute confidence. But what you said is so true. I, I had a student, that, a very, very fine drummer, um, but, you know, kind of conservative. I mean, he was really his favorite drummers, you know, like Shelly Mann, Mel Lewis, Jeff Hamilton, you mm-hmm. know, played in that bag, did it extremely well. So but he's getting his master's degree. So what was Bobby's uh, comp question? Trace the uh, effects of Tony Williams drumming on a rap. 
Oh, and this man. poor guy didn't even know where to start. Wow. I said, well, it's, you know, okay, so, you know, here are some links for you to listen to, some of the people that have sampled him, and also you need to listen to uh, Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Right. So you you listen to that, and then you listen to these other things, and then you write your your answers to your question. Right. You'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. Get 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 out of your shell. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, open yourself up. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Bobby Bobby did a similar kind of question on on my comps because he uh, I think at the time I was heavy into Bill Stewart and Peter Erskine, uh, mm-hmm. which I still am. Um, but, uh, Bobby's, yeah, what's not to like, right, right. Of course. But I, you know, I think it was the same kind of thing. Bobby wanted to smack me out of my, my bubble a little bit. And, uh, his, his question for me was, uh, trace, it was like trace the development or, or connect the dots between, um, chick web, uh, art Blakey and Tony Williams. Beautiful. So yeah, I had to I had to just start listening and looking at videos and and you know because I Bobby wouldn't ask that if there wasn't a connection if he didn't see a connection. Between oh, absolutely. Those. You know, and and yeah, our Blakey is just a modern modernization of Chick Webb. I mean, right. The, the, everything, just the the if you saw a silhouette blacked out of them playing, just the the arms moving. You know, yeah, it's right straight out of Chick Webb. Yeah, That's yeah. Great. But I can I can relate to your other student where you look at this comp question and you're like, holy yeah. shit, what have I gotten in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was. He was just shaking his head. I didn't know where to start with this. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, here you go. <laughs> well, uh, one you may of not the, like it. Here it is. Yeah, yeah. But no, it was it was super interesting. And I'm sure he, you know, I'm sure he found it interesting. Well, he did. Yeah. Yeah, Unless yeah. Once he got into it. Yeah. Um, one of the things we do here on the podcast is uh, m- most of the people we interview, we we ask them about their their top five desert island records that they can't live without, and and we usually make it a uh, bonus content on our website for people who donate uh-huh. to our uh, donate to our Patreon page or or what have you. So it's usually bonus content, but I think uh, on this on this occasion, I'm just going to make it part of the regular interview because I can't wait to hear, and I can't wait for everybody else to hear. What your uh, what your desert island record picks are going to be? So if you could Man. take your time. Oh, that's a tough one. Okay, <laughs> so one of them um, needs to be uh, Getz Gilberto, the, the the collaboration between Stan Getz and what actually was Jobim's working band mm-hmm. at that time, and. Uh, so it was the Chauvin was actually gigging with in New York, going into do a recording session and Stan gets sitting in. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a fantastic recording. That's where the, the girl from Ipanema came from and all that. But just the way the group plays together and, and gets and the whole thing. That's wonderful. Right. Uh, an album that is all but impossible to find by Chauvin called Inedito, I-N-E-D-I-T-O, pronounced Inedito, mm. <laughs> Inedito. It's probably, it, it was always his favorite recording, and it's just his band playing his arrangements of his tunes. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, Straight Life by Freddie Hubbard hmm. with Joe Henderson 
Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, Freddie Hubbard, uh, Richie Landrum playing percussion, Jack D. Jeanette's playing drums. Uh, that's of that style. It's it's better than anything. I mean, it, I, I think it's it's. I could listen to that all day. <laughs> better, better than Bitches Brew. Better than you know. Anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I like all of the the uh, the Gerund Miles albums. You know, relaxing, cooking all of those. Right, the right. That they, that they did like in two days. You know, they were just done so quick, but they're just you know such swinging, perfect jazz recordings. Yeah. Um. How many is that? Is that that, four? I think that's four, Four, yeah. There's got to be... Well, it's really... That's that's hard. Especially without singling out... Well, okay, I can single it out. Triangulo by um, Michel Camilo with uh, Horacio Hernandez. Yeah. Uh, That's a a fantastic recording. Um... Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah. Got to be on there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that's actually six, but... That's okay. I'm, very... I'm actually, I'm actually going to ask you to, to to name a couple more because, you know, I think I think the Stan Getz thing for a lot of people is kind of the gateway into, into Brazilian music, into samba and bossa nova. Um, well, it is, you know, and one of the interesting things about that is that, that Getz uh, scuffled on that. Uh-huh. He had a hard time making that work. And if you listen carefully, the, the, the common bossa nova patterns that you think people play sound an awful lot like what is being played on this album, but João Gilberto's guitar comping, like on Desafinado, it, it's not very downbeat oriented. Mm-hmm. It's like one, two, three, four, da, 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 da. Right, and if right. you think that, that anticipated thing, if you're hearing that on the downbeat, you're screwed. Right, right. Um, and I know that's what threw him for a loop. The first time that, uh, and even after that, the first few times I played with a Brazilian rhythm section, it's just really slippery. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. It's I mean, a good it's... word for it, but like I've I've found like whenever I try to kind of describe the basic differences between Afro-Cuban music and and Brazilian music to a lay person, I I think of Afro-Cuban music as very angular. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's harmonically yeah. and rhythmically angular, and it's and it's squared Absolutely. off. And and in Brazilian music, both the rhythms and the harmony are like you said, just slippery, man. It's sneaky and slithery. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Um, but about it's the, it's got this light propulsion to it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's light, but it's propulsive. So uh, about the gets record, you know, I, I think a lot of people listen to that record and, and say, okay, I've listened to some Brazilian music and, and it's not that they haven't, but, uh, I, I would love for you to recommend a, a couple more records or artists or drummers, particularly from the drumming standpoint of uh, Brazilian, you know, Brazilian artists that you feel, uh, drummers could could check out and kind of get a good sense of what uh, you know true authentic. Oh sure, yeah. Okay, so there's a, a new, a fairly new guy. He's not really that new, but he's a really good friend of mine and is an extraordinary player. Uh, his name is I'll say it in English, Rafael Barata. Mm-hmm. Rafael Barata. Yeah. Um, and he's uh, a young guy from Rio, he's not really 
that young anymore, but um, I've known him since I think he was 19 years old. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the first, well, I was there in Rio and um, the singer was playing with my friend, singing with my friend Osmar, a pianist I mentioned, and she said, you know, I've got this young drummer that you should come in here. He's a 40-year-old Brazilian jazz drummer living in this young man's body. <laughs> and so I, I went, and he was. Yeah. He was. He was everything she said. It was amazing. He was a super nice guy. So we became friends, stayed in touch. And um, then a few years later, he's playing with my friend Osmar. Osmar has mm. found him. <laughs> and then a few years later, he's playing with Eliane Elias. And in fact, the last time I saw him was just a few months ago when Eliani was in town and, and Hoppe was playing drums and, you know, we, we shut down the folly. I mean, they were closing, they were turning the lights off. And we were still That's great. Hanging out, talking. But uh, so he's on all of recent recordings by um, Antonio Adolfo. Mm -hmm. And you can get his recordings. Any of those uh, are fantastic. Antonio Adolfo, and um, so check those out. Those are really, really excellent um, new recordings. Right. There's another group uh, called Trio, it looks like Corrente, C-O-R-R-E-N-T-E, -R -R -E -E. Trio Cohenci. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're fantastic. Even the they're, language is slippery, man. Like, you oh, look at us. Probably the, the key to everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Slippery. Yeah, Trio Kohenshi, so that's that's fantastic. Um, uh, let's see, what is the name of it? Oslo by Gilberto Gil is mm -hmm. a kind of a more popular recording that's fantastic. Um, any of Javan's uh, older, Javan spelled D-J-A-V-A-N, mm -hmm. um, the brand newest ones I'm not crazy about. The ones that are at least uh, ten years old um, are fantastic. Yeah, cool. Uh, Bicho Soltero uh, looks like B I C H O Soltero S O L T E I R O. That's yeah. a fantastic one. It's kind of Brazilian funk, but boy. Is it funky? Yeah, so, that's it's not a samba recording, right? That's another thing about Brazilian but it music. Is funky, that, yeah, funk think, is alive and well in Brazil. Oh my god, and it's—I mean—it's infused with with samba and bossa nova and, and right. choro and all that stuff. But man, the grooves are are just so deep and so yeah. cool. And I know when I'm done, I'll think of a bunch more that you know I should have said. But, <laughs> well, you know, Gal you can, Costa is a fantastic one. Say that again, Gal. Costa, C-O-S-T-A. She and again her older ones, mm -hmm. you know, those are fantastic. She's an amazing singer. Yeah, yeah. The story uh, there. The, Joe Henderson made this double rainbow album, and several of my friends were on that. And he and I actually had a wonderful conversation about that. The idea was he was actually going to do a recording with Jobim, who. Uh, he said, you know, he, he plays way more piano than people think he does. Mm -hmm. Jobim became a very sparse pianist, much like Count Basie. But, you know, that was through choice. Right. And Basie, you know, in earlier times, played a whole lot of piano. And so did Jobim. And so Henderson was going to do a, a jazz recording with Jobim. Unfortunately, Jobim had a heart attack and died. 
So Henderson kept the project alive, had Eliani play piano. So he had two bands. He had an American band with Herbie Hancock and, and the usual suspects uh, with that. I think Ron Carter playing bass. Right. And then he had the Brazilian band with Eliani and, and I think Sebastian Neto and Oscar Casmoneves. Um, so that's a really good album called Double Rainbow. But that was and Gal Costa. I don't think she made it to the album, but that was his idea. Get together with Jobim and uh, Gal Costa to sing, and we're going to do this thing. And it would have been amazing if it had happened. Right, right. Well, I think yeah. that's a that's a good uh, that's a good list for people to dig into. Yeah, it'll okay. keep us busy for a while. <laughs> All right. All right. Cool. Well, it was great to talk to you, Doug. Man, it was it was good to see you. And you too. I'm, I hope you're going to darken our doorway sometime soon. It won't be too long. Yeah. You know, if I yeah. if I go more than a Sitting year, out on the deck with you and Christina was an extremely pleasant evening. Uh, for us. Oh yeah, that was it. It was so great, and you know, yeah. if, if if more than about a year goes by and I haven't been to Kansas City, I, I start getting I start getting a Jones for for the people, yeah. the people, and the music and the food and and everything that we love there. So well, uh, stay so with it, that. Yeah, it won't be long. All right. Well, thanks very much great pleasure for me thank you man and and uh, right. continued continued success and and luck in Thank your you. recovery and, yeah and, uh, and play through it man we know you it's, will it's happening yeah. yeah much love to you and christina back christina. at you there you go doug allwater i hope you enjoyed that and i hope you can see why i and so many other musicians in kansas city through the years have counted doug among their biggest and best influences uh, when matt interviewed bob a few episodes back uh, you could tell that he felt that what he's achieved and the kind of musician he is was due in no small part to Bob, and I feel the exact same way about Doug. Uh, whether in the classroom or on stage, Doug has always taught by example and uh, just been a, a good hang no matter what, and I hope he will continue to do so for many years to come. Don't forget to follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a rating and review there if you please. Thanks as always to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.